Hi there. We are listening to Midas Touch. And then Cyperdon strikes out in court because his lawyer fucked up. That former presidents during the time they were in office could act as kings. They can do whatever they want. They could summon the military and have a coup. They could do anything and say, ha ha, we're not responsible. That clearly can't be what the text, the structure, or the history of our Constitution is all about. But then the second reason is blasting game. Donald Trump's conduct, while criminal, also relates to the January 6th insurrection because the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals found that the insurrection conduct relating to Donald Trump, as alleged in the Blasting Game case, is outside the outer perimeter of absolute presidential immunity. He doesn't have it for that reason. So there's two powerful reasons right here that both go hand in glove. The one thing that I'm surprised Special Counsel Jack Smith didn't do, because Jack Smith's been super aggressive and did a few really powerful Mm -hmm. moves, I'm just surprised he didn't, Mm -hmm. and this could just be because he thought this could cause more delay, but tell Judge Tanya Chutkin that Donald Trump's appeal, because of blasting game, is Mm -hmm. frivolous to try to certify the appeal as a frivolous appeal from the outset. But I think Special Counsel Jack Smith knew Mm -hmm. that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals kind of knew that, and would expedite it. So, right, Jack Smith did two things. One, filed a direct petition to the United States Supreme Court for certiorari, saying this is an extraordinary case. Certiorari or oral argument should happen in this term immediately before going through the normal years and years and years it takes cases to go to the Supreme Court because this is so fundamental, so foundational to our democracy. Supreme Court responds right away, says, Donald Trump, you have until December 20th to respond to the issue of whether or not certiorari should be granted. So the Supreme Court not granting certiorari yet. They haven't decided that. That's the oral argument before them on the issue of absolute presidential immunity. But granting special counsel Jack Smith's um, request to expedite the briefing. That's in front of the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, special counsel Jack Smith filed a motion to expedite the briefing on the issue of absolute presidential immunity before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Jack Smith needed to do that, especially because federal judge Tanya Chutkin, the judge who I just mentioned is overseeing the trial, who's a great law and order, no nonsense judge. She looked at the law and said, my hands are kind of tied here. Absolute presidential immunity seems to encompass the entire case. And there is a doctrine called Griggs, which says on an appeal to the D.C. Circuit or to whatever the appellate circuit court is, it stays the district court proceedings. There's a recent uh, case that came out called Coinbase versus Bielski and um, and applying the Griggs doctrine, applying Coinbase and applying the logic, at least of the blasting game case that talks about if absolute presidential immunity exists. It means that no proceedings can take place, even though blasting game ruled against Trump. She basically said, Judge Tiny Chuck said, look, my hands are tied. I have to stay the proceedings here. I'm I'm not going to vacate my trial dates. I'm going to keep the trial dates on, but I can't have any more proceedings here. So special counsel Jack Smith has to run, run, run to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to expedite this briefing. Donald Trump thinks he gets a big win 
by having the case delayed and stayed by Judge Tanya Chutkin. So Donald Trump feels he got great news in, in the morning for his delay strategy. But then the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals says, not so fast, not so fast. And boom, they hit him with this briefing schedule that is as expedited as you can be before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Trump's brief is due December 20th on the issue of absolute presidential immunity, which was denied by Judge Tanya Chutkin. Jack Smith's is due December 30th. And then Trump's reply brief is due January 2nd, 2024. So all of the briefing now will be due. We're talking about, you know, in, in the next 20 days. So in terms of a delay, we're looking at uh, more like a, a, a 45 to 60 day delay of Judge Tanya Chutkin's proceedings by the time oral argument is scheduled, which I think will be sometime around January 10th to 15th. So Trump is getting, I think, a delay, not the delay he wanted. And I think this can still be kept on track. A lot of concepts there that I wanted to throw out to kind of before I, I hit you with the analysis, Popak, that you can give our legal efforts out there on, on all of that. But that's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, so there's two things that happened back to back at the U.S. Supreme Court. One, they thought it was interesting as to whether the appeal of the immunity issue should be decided by them directly rather than have the record more fully completed below and let the D.C. Intermediary Court decide it first. Jack Smith did the right thing. You and I said a couple of weeks ago that when there was some misreporting about, oh, no, the appeal at the D.C. Court of Appeals based on an order spit out by an automated service system says that his his next big piece of paper he has to file the appeal is late December. Oh, no. And we said, relax there. First of all, either the panel is going to get in place and make a decision that goes faster than that, or Jack Smith's going to do something to force their hand. And right on cue, Jack Smith did two things to show how serious this is. Um, it'll take either one. Uh, one is uh, the, to get the Supreme Court interested on the issue of this is such an important issue that we don't even have to go to the lower level intermediary court, um, even though you're a court of limited jurisdiction, Supreme Court. You can do this and should do this directly. And, um, and that, of course, was a wake-up call because that got decided first by the Supreme Court. And then hours later, the D.C. Court of Appeals said, no, we're going to do this expedited, too, on the actual issue. We have jurisdiction over the appeal. Let's do this on an expedited issue. First, they said, let's have expedited briefing on whether we should have an expedited appeal. Donald Trump cited the Grinch that stole Christmas. I'm not making this up. Harper Collins, 1957, for those that are following the copyright, uh, and Wasted Ink telling the panel, oh, my God, we have to work over Christmas? That sounds terrible. And like an hour later, the panel said, okay, so we're having an expedited appeal. Uh, and here's the briefing schedule that, Ben, you just read out there. At the same time, the Supreme Court said, oh, hold on. We're going to figure out whether at the same time, don't stop anything. We'll do this all parallel all out in the open. We'll figure out whether we want to take the appeal directly or have them say after seeing the briefing there, you guys look like you're in good hands with the D.C. Court of Appeals. Finish up there. If there's an issue, come back and see us. That's where it's going to go. I'm not sure yet, except we, ha we have to read something into the fact that within two days after they decided, the Supreme Court, to take the, uh, the, is the, is the issue up to them, whether they have or want jurisdiction to be asserted, 
by the Supreme Court on the immunity issue now or wait. That's just a timing issue. It's not a either. It's not a, well, we're, we're going to stay out of it forevermore. It's do we want to do it right now or do we want to do it after our lower level appellate court goes first? That's the only issue that's really up there. But it's important. As I said, the velocity of this is important. If we're going to hit a March, April-ish trial date for Donald Trump, it's got to happen then. And then if she'll just start her trial, uh, just to answer the question on some people's minds, she's not, Judge Chuck is not going to care if Aileen Cannon has, has uh, you know, double booked restaurants, like she's on some sort of judicial open table, and she's not sure she's really going to use that, that, uh, that uh, appointment or not. Uh, Chuck is just going to start her trial. <laughs> and if the other one happens or doesn't happen, she's going to let the lawyers run around and argue, oh, my God, we have two trials back to back or whatever it is. But she's just going to go forward. If she loses a month or a week or two weeks or whatever it ends up being on this fast track, then so be it. So you got that going on. But at the same time and in the same breath, you've got the Supreme Court sending another message, which is we're going to have our first opportunity to tell the Department of Justice and therefore um, uh, the world whether the obstruction of an official proceeding whether these Jan 6 insurrectionists, these Jan 6 defendants, uh, were properly charged or were they overcharged, as that concept is used in prosecutor world, were they overcharged with crimes that don't fit the facts? These are very novel facts. We've never, other than in the 1800s, had an attack on our capital by domestic terrorists, you know, defendants. So, you know, prosecutors have to take existing law. They, they can't make up crime on the spot, you know, uh, criminal statutes on the spot. Take existing law and map it onto novel facts. And if they get it right, they're great. If they get it a little wrong, that's called overcharging. And so the question is, have they overcharged in using the 20-year sentence which is the highest level other than seditious conspiracy, which they've used to obtain hundreds of convictions, either by plea, by bench trial, or by jury verdict already. And then Donald Trump has two of his four counts in the D.C. case are whether he corruptly attempted to interfere with an official proceeding, congressional uh, proceeding, which is the, the, the certificate count, the certification of the electoral votes. How did we get here? We got here because Judge Nichols at the D.C. Uh, DC judge said, I thought it was a bridge too far. He said that that particular statute, which came out of the 2002 Enron financial debacle, deals with sort of white collar crime and somebody really ripping up the ballots, destroying evidence and that type of thing, not, you know, attacking the Capitol at the right moment to stop the certification. God, that sounds like corruptly. Uh, trying to stop a uh, official uh, congressional proceeding to me, but to Judge Nichols, if you didn't like physically get your hands on the certificates, like go up to Mike Pence at the podium and like rip them out of your hands, it, then that statute didn't apply. Although that's nowhere in the language of the statute. So uh, he, that's the appeal. What do you have to do to constitute corruptly, willfully interfering with a congressional proceeding and has it been properly applied? If the Supremes were to rule, for instance, that it was not properly, uh, it's not properly a count that should be used against these people on these facts, then that's going to send people out of the jails because there's lots of people serving time right now because they got convicted on that count. And it will vacate sentences unless they were convicted of something else, which a lot of them were, and all, everything else. Mm. And for Donald Trump, it means, if depending upon when the ruling comes out, mm. they either have to drop two of the four counts against them. They've got two other having to do with defrauding the U.S. government and suppressing the vote, but they'd lose the two highest value 
crimes on the indictment, Jack Smith would, if the Supreme Court case comes out. Now, normally, when you're doing, uh, when they decide to take up a case in January, which is effectively now, you don't get a ruling after briefing and oral argument until like June. If this trial happens in March or April, that's not going to help Donald Trump. If he got convicted, they later ruled that he shouldn't have been, then on appeal, he'd be able to have that portion of his of his conviction uh, vacated, although that's not, that's not the perfect world for Jack Smith to be in. But uh, there's a message being sent, and I want to hear your view on it, by the Supreme Court in saying, yes, we're going to figure out whether we should be dealing with immunity right now with Donald Trump. And by the way, half of your indictment, we're going to decide whether that was properly charged or not. Get that out of the way right now. I have a theory. I did it on my hot take. I want to hear what your theory is about the messaging and what do you think they do? I want to hear your prediction on do they take the direct appeal or make it go back through the D.C. Court of Appeals giving the timing here? And secondly, what do you think they ultimately do with the charge of that charge being applied and mapped on to Donald Trump and the other insurrectionist conduct? I'll tell you what I think after our last quick break of the day. Well, if you like that, lawyers who think they know what they're talking about when it comes to politics, law, and justice, and they do it twice a week, yeah. every week on the Midas Touch Network, and on hot takes just like this one, then you'll love Lee. Um, Rudy has no escape from crushing verdict that's all over two hours ago. Real estate market is bad and everybody knows it. At this point, it just became an old news. It's Michael Popak, Legal AF After Dark. Wheels of justice move slow. Legal news, on the other hand, moves at a rapid pace. And we caught the story of Rudy Giuliani losing $148 million jury verdict in the defamation case brought by Shea Moss and... Ruby Freeman this past Saturday. And during it, my partner and I, Ben Micellis, we said, well, isn't he defaming them all over again on the courthouse steps and in news conferences during the trial? I mean, you got to be a special brand of stupid to defame the people that are suing you for defamation during the defamation trial. And we cover it all and broke it down on Legal AF this past weekend. Take a listen. Rudy Giuliani gets hit with this verdict. Does that get deferred? Does he get to appeal it? What happens with uh, if he declares bankruptcy? Will Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss actually see any money? Let's discuss this all right now. So the lengthy verdict form that you all saw for those watching on our YouTube channel, we'll post it up there uh, again. Here's how the damages broke out in the verdict form by the jury. Compensatory damages six for Ruby Freeman, sixteen million one hundred and seventy-one thousand dollars for Shea Moss, sixteen million nine hundred and ninety-eight thousand dollars. Then it went to the issue of emotional distress or general damages for the intentional infliction of emotional distress claim, a separate claim. Twenty million dollars for Ruby Freeman, twenty million dollars for Shea Moss, and then you went to punitive damages, seventy-five million dollars there were it was an eight-person jury in the civil trial it had to be a unanimous decision and it was we're talking about a total of what 148 million dollars in a verdict entered against rudy giuliani it was about a week-long trial it was just on the issue of damages the same way that the case against trump next month will just be on the issue of damages and punitive damages because rudy giuliani failed to participate in basic 
aspects of the case. The same way as this trial started, Rudy Giuliani said, I'm going to testify. I'm going to set the record straight. He gave these press conferences after each day of the trial where he said, I intend to testify. I'm going to let you know what really happened. I'm going to confront Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. He also continued to defame them after the trial. Uh, after the days of trial, that is, when he would go out and do these press conferences and then they would um, then show the jury, look what Rudy Giuliani just said about them again. Outside, after these proceedings ended, here's what Rudy Giuliani was doing. And that gave you just a glimpse into the behavior of Rudy Giuliani and MAGA people in general during these court cases. They don't turn over the documents, so they get sanctioned. They don't provide answers to the most basic questions of litigations. They don't show up when they're requested to show up. And so ultimately, the judge basically said, enough's enough, you know, we're finding you liable, enough of the games. And now the case moves on to the damages uh, portion of it. Giuliani, as I mentioned, did not show up there. Michael Popak, take us through what went down, maybe your impressions during the trial, how ultimately Giuliani's lawyer essentially had to argue during the closing argument that my client is a bad guy, mm -hmm. but don't judge him based on what he did in recent times just realize he's an old guy this was actually the closing argument remember the good old days with rudy well that didn't work i thought the lawyer for rudy also insulted the jury's intelligence by attacking plaintiffs expert witnesses and then you had ruby freeman and shay moss confidently confronting giuliani testifying going through our judicial process that exists. They were cross-examined. They put themselves before the jury. Their lawyer pointed that out as well on closing argument. They showed up. They told you what went down in their life. The other person didn't and was defaming them outside of the courthouse too. So it gives us a broader glimpse too, right, into like people who participate in our judicial system and people who try to shred it and rip it down. The number one reason that uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman rightfully won their case is because of Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. They were horribly defamed and doxxed. Their lives were turned upside down and inside out, and nobody was able to communicate that better than Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. So there wasn't a dry eye in the house when they testified. That jury sat riveted during that testimony. Um, I got choked up preparing to do a hot take about the testimony. I mean, it's that powerful. And juries, um, there's a lot of criticism about the jury system in America, but I believe in it. And uh, at the end of the day, juries don't like frauds. They don't like somebody who's not authentic, and they don't like to be lied to. Um, and all of those things happened on the other side of that table with Rudy Giuliani. He was not authentic. He decided he was, he'd rather, as the judge pointed out during a hearing without the jury, he'd rather go out and try to pander to his social media audience outside the courtroom than do anything effective to defend himself inside the wood paneling of the courtroom. And that's the split screen we've always seen with MAGA. And Donald Trump is the, it's the playbook that they all run. Rudy Giuliani ain't no Donald Trump, and he does a very ham-fisted impression of Donald Trump. He figured, well, Donald Trump could hold press conferences and not testify. I'll do the same thing. Except, um, you know, there are very skilled lawyers on the other side, as there are in the civil fraud case in New York. And those lawyers uh, were smart enough every time um, Rudy Giuliani said something outside the courtroom during the trial, including the first two days. That was inconsistent with the, with the judge's order 
orders about what he could and could not say um, and or were just more defamatory statements. They brought it to the judge's attention and more importantly, they presented it to the jury. You're not going to hear from uh, Mr. Giuliani apparently in the courtroom, but here's what happened outside the courtroom, roll tape, and they just rolled it. And the jury couldn't help, I'm sure there was a lot of eye rolling, couldn't help but uh, watch the, the real-time self-destruction of Rudy Giuliani. If they had any doubts at all on that jury, um, it was all, uh, all doubt was removed because of Rudy Giuliani's own conduct. Even his own lawyer, uh, Joe Sibley, who was the last in a long line of lawyers. This one, you know, this is the uh, one that got the short straw and actually had to try the case. You know, he was the, the, the best, and I've, I've been a defense, I am a defense lawyer. The best that he could do was to tell the jury, I know you hate my client. He's old. He's 80. He's losing his fastball. He does weird things. But, you know, remember him when he was mayor in the 80s. First of all, that's not the standard for assessing punitive damages. Punitive damages are for what you've done right now as a punishment, not what you, you know, whatever you think your laurels or your resume is that it's, that's now in shreds uh, 50, you know, 40 years ago. So if that is the best you can do and then your guy compounds it, with his eye rolling in the courtroom, his refusal to look at the jury, his refusal to look Seamus and and, uh, and Ruby Freeman in the eye, the jury is going to do the right thing, and they're going to follow the evidence. And and we, you know, just to remind those that are joining us uh, for the first time, and of course remind people that have been with us for the whole journey about our analysis. Um, as you mentioned, Ben, the judge, as a sanction and as a finding, found as a matter of law that Rudy Giuliani had defamed those two women, the mother-daughter team, and that they had suffered damage, and that left it only to the jury to decide how big of a check they were going to write. You and I thought it was going to probably approach, if they were asking $50 million, you and I were joking, 60, 80, 90, somewhere, I thought north, uh, sorry, south of 100 million, uh, but and we'll talk about the jury verdict in a minute. But the judge also went a step further because of all of Rudy's misconduct. He has no one to blame but himself. And the misconduct of him hiding his financial records from the other side, which is important to a punitive damage case, refusing to say how much he made on his podcast, how much he made in, in collection from his, you know, audience slash suckers, how much he's made, what's in his 401k, what's in his pension plan from the federal government and all. He just refused to turn it over. And the judge says, all right, fine. You don't turn it over by next week, which he didn't. I'm going to instruct the jury that the reason that you're, you not, you did not reveal your finances is because you're trying to mislead them to have sympathy, to lower the number when they get around to awarding punitive damages. And I'm going to so instruct them. And they did. So before the jury even went back to deliberate, they were basically told that Rudy Giuliani's a liar and a fraud, and he's trying mm -hmm. to mislead you. That's not a great place as a defense lawyer to be, <laughs> to send the, the jury off for their first session of deliberation. It took him 10 hours. We on Legal AF were speculating, what is taking so long? And I thought, and I was wrong, I thought that what was taking so long is that there was a group on one end of the extreme. They wanted to give like 10 million. And there was another group that wanted to go to like a couple of hundred million and they couldn't find the compromise position. But when I got the jury verdict for it, which took about 10 hours for them to, to render it, it had some weird numbers, which we'll have to wait to jury interviews to figure out what, what they did. But they used the formula. I don't know what the formula was. I don't know what it was based on. But when you have $16,171,000, so specific, $16,998,000, 
they and and one more than the other they use the formula in their own the juries do that they're like well for every maybe they heard a number about social media hits maybe they heard about you know the 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 five million of whatever's happened to them by the attacks and they multiplied that by some number they were given by the economist they came up with a number but they came up with a number and then very smartly guided by the lawyers they didn't they set a punitive damage number i think they reverse engineered this but it's not so many multiples of actual compensatory damages that for that reason it could be reversed or vacated on appeal they basically doubled the compensatory damages of 37 and change came up with 75 million which is about right under the case law whether you say it's one times compensatory damages or two times under the case law there's some formula that you have to kind of stick to you can't do 10 times compensatory but they got it about right now rudy of course first thing he got off and saying i love the press conferences for ruby freeman and shane moss they were they were so powerful so eloquent so authentic about what happened to them you know lady ruby on one side you know uh, uh daughter on the other i mean just amazing stuff and then you have to contrast that with rudy giuliani's ridiculous there i have evidence there's discovery i should have testified i didn't testify the judge is against me um all ridiculous these are not grounds for appeal if he needed to testify that he needed to testify if he got stopped on certain things he wanted to say, he needed to make a record in order to preserve issues for appeal. And so now we've got this 148 million, and I'll, I'll leave it to you next about. Um, and I did a hot take on it. What happens next? How do you collect 148 million? What happens with bankruptcy? What happens with appeals? And so you, I don't know if you want to kind of shape that a little bit. So the next step is if Rudy Giuliani wants to stay or pause collection efforts that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss would initiate right away, would have to do exactly what Trump did in the federal court in New York when Trump was found liable for defamation and sexual abuse in the E. Jean Carroll case in May. You got to post a supersedious bond um, that is at least equal to what the judgment is. So Trump posted a $5 million bond pending his appeal of E. Jean Carroll's verdict against him in the other E. Jean Carroll defamation and sexual abuse case. So Rudy Giuliani would have to do that here. Now, can Rudy Giuliani uh, come up with the funds of $148 million? Absolutely not. Um, can he come up with anything near that? Absolutely not. But do I think Rudy Giuliani is hiding money and hiding assets? Yes. And so I think now the work begins by Freeman and Moss to start collecting and trying to find all of his assets. And there are other proceedings and debtor exams and uh, all these other procedures to try to identify where his assets are, to seize those assets, um, to take his wages, any money that he makes. Um, by the way, including, um, you know, probably doing some procedures regarding Trump and Donald Trump's political action committees, that if they think they're going to try to pay Rudy Giuliani money, all that money goes immediately to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. They'll look at his podcast money. They'll look at all of that and they'll start collecting. Now, and one, one more one before you move on to that that we haven't talked about. I've been involved with these pension forfeiture proceedings. He gets a pension, I'm sure, as being a former, it's hard to believe he was the U.S. attorney. He was the former U.S. attorney, Department of Justice yep. in, in New York. He's got a pension. 
and they can go and he can they, he can, he can actually lose that pension and have it forfeited and paid over to uh, Ruby Freeman and Shamos. Now, if Ruby, if uh, Rudy Giuliani tries to declare bankruptcy, then that goes through a bankruptcy proceeding because this is an intentional act, an intentional tort. It's done with malice. It is a what's referred to as a non-dischargeable debt. And of course, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, they'll have to assert that if Giuliani files for bankruptcy, Giuliani will try to claim this uh, this judgment and all of his other debts are dischargeable. In bankruptcy, what's called an adversary proceeding would take place, but an adversary proceeding where there's already a judgment in a sister court like there is right here in the Washington, D.C. District Court, what Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss's lawyers would do is tell the bankruptcy judge, hey, look, the adverse, for purposes of the adversary proceeding, this jury's already found punitive damages. In other words, that Giuliani's acted intentionally and with malice and fraud, and therefore it's non-dischargeable. So Rudy won't be able to extinguish this in bankruptcy. And so um, Rudy's got big problems. I mean, for the rest of the remainder of Rudy's life, Freeman and Shea Moss will seek to collect on him. And then they're going to look to the estate. And so any of uh, Rudy Giuliani's kids who are hoping for a trust fund or, or anything like that or, 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 or any money in a will, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss are going to be right there ready to seize it. Uh, Popak, final thoughts on Freeman and Moss, because then I want to talk about how this relates to the Donald Trump defamation case, which is set for trial uh, next month, end of January. And it's also a case where Trump's been found liable already by a jury in the previous case. And a doctrine called collateral estoppel now means that that jury verdict is such that Trump is found liable in the next defamation case against Trump. So it's just damages and punitive damages. And like Giuliani, Donald Trump's out there repeatedly defaming E. Jean Carroll. And this next jury in New York is going to say, after Donald Trump was found liable by a prior jury, he went on CNN the next moment in a town hall in front of millions and humiliated her and has done it again each and every time. That that Trump verdict is going to be massive, Popak. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a bit. Final yeah. words on, on Freeman and Moss. Yeah, and I'll tie it, I'll tie it back to, to Trump also. the uh, Ruby Freeman in her press conference said she's not done. There are other people that are continuing to defame her. This does not conclude the chapter, and I said it a hot take. There will one day be a bronze statue of Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss um, as testament to their heroism and their courage at what they're doing. They are at the heart of the Georgia election interference case, Ruby Freeman especially. She's a prime witness there. At least three of the co-conspirator defendants with Donald Trump are tied back to what they did to Ruby Freeman to try to get her uh, fraudulently to admit that she participated in voter fraud when she didn't. And there are people in even there, the co-conspirators like uh, uh, Travion QT and Mr. Willie Floyd, who continue to this moment to defame Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss on social media, giving rise to future cases against them. And now they've got a potential $148 million war chest to go after people. In addition, they settled before the Giuliani case with a number of right-wing media companies, and so they had that pot already prepared. So 
Georgia has a one-year statute of limitations for defamation. Within one year of somebody defaming you, you've got to file your lawsuit. So if Donald, I had, I don't, I'm not sure. I asked on my hot take for people to go scrub the internet and see if Donald Trump said anything stupid and defamatory against those two in the last year, because that would give rise to a new claim. You can't go back beyond a year. But these two up in Georgia certainly uh, could be sued for defamation. And Rudy Giuliani. Um, just three days ago to fame them again the way that uh, Donald Trump did. Now, on to Donald Trump for just two seconds. That original, you and I had had a head-scratcher about why, with all the evidence that was presented in the uh, summer, early summer trial of um, E. Jean Carroll, the, the former editor who um, a jury judged had been raped by Donald Trump, sexually assaulted, and defamed in uh, the, uh, the, the sexual misconduct was in 1996 and then defamation ever since. And yet only awarded her after hearing evidence, even including expert testimony of some economists of about, I don't know, two and a half million or so of punitive damages. We thought that was pretty light uh, and we weren't quite sure. Now forget that. The new jury isn't going to know about that. It's not relevant to their issue of, of just how big of a set of damages punitive included they're going to hit Donald Trump with for defaming her again, over and over again to send the message. And they, it's not going to be in the courtroom officially, but everybody, everybody knows this is so close in time to the $148 million judgment that the jury is going to know about it. And certainly the lawyers, and we know them well, They've been on our show, Robbie Kaplan, is going to ask for a bigger number now, uh, knowing that a jury is willing to pick up a pen and write a big check if presented with the appropriate evidence against a defendant that they despise who has done these things. And so I think uh, now and we'll in the, either that commercial after commercial or whatever, we'll talk about the fact that this trial against Rudy Giuliani, uh, against uh, Donald Trump is going forward in the middle of January. He does not have sovereign immunity. And we'll, after our break, we'll, we'll tell the audience why the case is going forward. He has no immunity. Yeah, he doesn't have absolute presidential immunity. By the way, I bet you that Trump's lawyer in the E. Jean Carroll case, Joe Takapina, either wrote a note to Donald Trump or told Boris Epstein or someone who hangs out with Trump all the time, you see what a good job I did for Donald Trump that the jury only hit Trump for $5 million. Look at what, I bet you Takapina did that. Look at what the jury, look at what the jury did. And then he's going to say, because Donald Trump's been throwing Takapina under the bus lately, right. and blaming Takapina for the $5 million. Now, because of Trump's conduct post Takapina's defense, look, I want to be objective here. Compared to Giuliani's team, Takapina had a, I think, a more difficult case, and the jury only awarded $5 million. But this is the thing about representing Trump. What did Trump do the next day after Trump was only hit with a $5 million verdict? He went on and defamed E. Jean Carroll again. It makes it impossible to represent him. One final point yeah. I want to make as well, though, too, about the case that Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss can now file to the extent there is a claim within the statute of limitations against Donald Trump. They didn't sue Trump originally for defamation because they didn't want the case to be stayed or bogged down on the question of absolute presidential immunity as that was stopping and staying all of these cases, right? So on about two weeks ago, when the blasting game decision came down, that found that Donald Trump was um, 
uh, not entitled to absolute presidential immunity on things relating to the January 6th insurrection because his conduct there fell outside even the outer perimeters of Article II executive authority because it involved election and campaigning. So to me, the blasting game decision is dispositive when it comes to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss that Trump's statements about them do not fall within the outer perimeters of his absolute presidential immunity because it involved election and campaigning per Blossingame. So now they're able to sue Donald Trump on that basis. The statute may have run, but I think their broader point that they wanted to have is they wanted that case before a jury. They wanted their justice, and they probably realized that no matter what, Trump is going to defame them again because he's sociopathic and a malignant narcissist, and he will continue. It's just a matter of when's the next time he's going to do that. He's, he will defame them. It's just a matter of, of when. He can't help himself. It, 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 and now seeing Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, we've heard so much about them, but now seeing them and seeing how much they were psychologically and emotionally devastated by it. I am sure in consultation with their lawyers, they made a decision not to go after Donald Trump because they were afraid. Karen Freeman Agnifilo, our, our colleague and podcast partner, made that point a couple of weeks ago, and, and I, I think she's right. The more I see them, I think she's right. Because what you and I would have done if this was just a straight like business dispute and we didn't have crazy, violent party on the other side, Donald Trump, we would have at least filed the case in, inside of the statute of limitations to preserve the case, to preserve the claim, let it be stayed, and then move forward with Rudy Giuliani. They didn't even do that. Um, they were willing to walk from from Donald Trump's. So I don't think they could put their clients through this. One last just um, observation: one of the reason that the punitive damages got ratcheted up, you know, just fire hosed in uh, Rudy's case, is because of what I said earlier, which is they were given an instruction by the judge that you are to assume that Rudy Giuliani is hiding his assets from you when you write your check. Uh, that's not yet present in the Trump case. It may still be about that. I'm not sure if he's turned over all of his finances. I think his finances are a little bit more public since the civil fraud case has, has revealed all of them um, in terms of uh, uh, statements of financial condition and where assets are. And there's a monitor over everything that he owns. So I'm not sure it's going to have that same. I'm not sure that when Robbie, ba Robbie Kaplan makes her opening statement, she's going to have a jury as pissed off on the issue of the finances as they were against Giuliani. But that doesn't mean that you're not right, that Donald Trump is a is even more despicable than Donald, uh, than Rudy Giuliani, especially in New York. And, um, and that I, all things, setting that all aside, there's no doubt in my mind that the number this new jury is going to award is going to be many times multiple higher than the jury in May awarded uh, her because of the despicable nature of the new conduct and because of, you know, they're going to send a message through the punitive damages. So I don't know if it's a hundred million dollars because they got to, you know, you always have to tie it to that compensatory. So if the compensatory damages that they, if, if Robbie and her team are able to put on substantial, this is a little bit of a problem. I, I just want to make it clear for our audience. It's new, you know, she got an award for what was, she was compensated for all of the damage from another jury for everything from 1996 all the way up until that jury award. Now it's got to be like new damage, actual compensatory damage, and it should, they have to put out a good expert on that in that delta, 
and then a putative damage number that sort of ties to that. So the only limiter here is how big of an actual damage award they're going to be able to come up come up with in order to then have a several multiples for punitive damages, pardon me, and total this thing out at some really high number. But look, we'll follow it every day, every way and every filing to bring it to our, our people's attention. But the market, I believe, has been reset. and They'll give the highest dollar amount that they think they can, and, and Robbie will ask for the highest dollar amount that she thinks she can get away with and, and have I mean, supported on appeal. The, let's be clear, when we're talking about compensatory and the overall uh, kind of damages, other than punitive damages, we're talking about, number one, like economic damages, doctor's bills and, and, and salary and things. But we're also separately, we're talking about general damages, which is emotional distress. And think about this closing argument or opening statement. Donald Trump was found to have engaged in sexual abuse of my client right. E. Jean Carroll. He was found to have engaged in what is the same thing as rape, although there's a technical definition variance in New York, but this court has found that to be the same thing as a rape that took place, number right. one. Number two, Donald Trump was then found to have defamed E. Jean Carroll in connection with raping her. Number three, immediately after a jury vindicated my client's rights, which was the most important day in her life after all of the trauma that she had, he went on CNN and then humiliated her and did it again to his rape victim, to his rape in front of millions of people. There is no bigger trauma than anybody. This is what this is going to be the argument. There is no bigger trauma than that we initially thought when we put this complaint 10 million dollars that's not enough for this emotional trauma 40 million dollars and then we think that you should award punitive damages five Maybe. times that yeah, and hit him with 150 million dollars yeah. i i think that you will see an argument that looks just like that and then here's what we'll say here's what i'll say now but uh, as we get really into the weeds on this then you're gonna have uh, Judge Ngoron's judgment in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case, that's going to hit sometime right around when the jury verdict hits. During. It, it, yeah. it could happen while the jury is deliberating. So what you're going to have right around early February to mid-February, mark the words, rewind the tape, Donald Trump's going to have about 500 to a billion dollars in judgments against him. I wrote 750 million. Yeah, yeah. I, I, exactly. I think it'll yeah. be, I'm, I'm hedging a little bit right now, 500 yeah. a billion dollars in judgment, and he's going to have to post a bond. <laughs> if he, well, if you like lawyers who know what they're talking about when it comes to law and politics and justice, you came to the right place, Legal AF. If you know everything about Legal AF and you're part of our audience and movement, we appreciate you. If you have no idea who I am or what I'm talking about, that was Legal AF. I'm Michael Popak, and catch us on Midas Touch YouTube every Wednesday and Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and then on podcast platforms of your choice. So until my next hot take, until my next Legal AF, this is Michael Popak reporting. Thanks so much for watching. We're only a few subscribers short of 2 million subs. Please subscribe right now to the Midas Touch YouTube channel for free and help us grow this unapologetically pro-democracy network.
fascism is, knowing what communism is, knowing what progressivism is. Progressivism is just the idea of moving slowly, progressing towards this side of the chalkboard. That's what makes us different. And the reason why this is happening to us is because we've never read our owner's manual, ever. We've never read it. I mean, if something goes wrong with your car, you know, you read the owner's manual, you find out exactly what to do. Guys are notorious for never reading the owner's manual. Well, I stand here today to tell you for 40 years, I never read the owner's manual of the United States of America. It's the Constitution is our owner's manual. Without that, we're lost. That's why we're having the problems that we're having now. Right. <clears throat> I'll let down. It's got Arbaugh on the Midas Touch Network. In our companion series, Against All Enemies, we've been diving deep into the overt religiosity that has become a feature of mainstream Republican politics, culminating in the election of Mike Johnson on a party-line vote to become Speaker of the House. Speaker Johnson is a fundamentalist Christian who openly claims to have been chosen by God for his current role. He has described America not as a democracy, but as a biblical republic, and he was one of the prime architects of the big lie that led to the January 6th insurrection. If you think I am exaggerating the degree to which Speaker Johnson declares a divine right to rule, check out the Against All Enemies video in which he says he was selected not by the votes of his peers, but by the Almighty to be America's Moses. I'll put the link to that video in the notes below. Today, we've got Frank Schaefer on the show to discuss how the religious right went so badly off the rails and took the Republican Party with it. Frank was born and raised in a hugely influential conservative Christian family. He has been described as evangelical royalty. I asked my friend Dara Star Tucker to guest host this interview because she is especially familiar with both the evangelical movement and Frank's work. I think you're going to love this one. Thanks. Real estate market is bad and everybody knows it. At this point, it just became an old news. If you are still looking to sell your house, you don't need to look anywhere else. You contact Nixie and we give you a cash offer within 24 hours and we close in three days. That's how quick we can close. No commissions. Welcome to Burn the Boats, Frank Schaefer. I'm so glad to have you here today. Likewise, Darren. Thank you for being with me. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you specifically. Um, you don't know me, but I sort of, I guess, by association, I know of you. 
um, quite well. I, I can't say that I've done the deep dive on your work, which is great because I like for conversations like this to feel fresh. Um, and I think there are a lot of places that uh, we're going to have an, an interesting time going today because a lot of my history intersects with your history, um, even in the evangelical world. So um, I will say that uh, Frank Schaefer is an author. How else would you describe yourself, uh, Frank? I don't, I don't want to limit uh, you. Can, you. can you tell the folks um, just in, in general how you, how you think of yourself, how you describe what you do? Sure. Well, let me start by saying that at 71, uh, with three grown children and a grandfather of five kids for whom I do childcare, these days, and I'm not trying to be cute, I, I don't really think of myself as either an author or a speaker or a commentator, or all those things I've done for a living. Um, after doing this interview with you, the other important date I have today is 3 p.m. pickup for my nine-year-old granddaughter that I do every day, what I will be cooking for her this afternoon and this evening, the childcare I'll do for her, um, taking my 15-year-old granddaughter to lunch this weekend, and the fact that my wife, Jeannie, survived a heart attack two years ago and is doing so well and asked me to open a bottle of red wine this morning so she could get a cup of red wine for the French onion soup she's making because she likes to cook too. That's actually who I am. Now, if you're asking me about bio type stuff, I guess I would say that I grew up in a famous evangelical household that the New York Times once described as evangelical royalty. And I left that in the after having become believe it or not, a nepotistic sidekick evangelical leader myself to my father, Francis Schaeffer, in the 1970s and 80s. We made a series of movies that became very famous on the evangelical and conservative Roman Catholic circuit because one series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race was really the foundation of the evangelical anti-abortion movement in the 70s and 80s. And so when I fled that movement, I became persona non grata to those folks. Um, I, I have been a writer, uh, oh, I don't know, for 35, 40 years now, I've written five novels and a whole bunch of nonfiction, including a memoir called Crazy for God, which I guess gets used in a lot of university history courses these days because they feel that perhaps it's a good description of the formation of the religious right and how and why it took over the Republican Party as part of my own family history. So I'm, I'm sort of an odd person. I'm a writer, self-employed type of guy. Uh, I'm a commentator. I have a podcast called In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And um, I interview a lot of people just like you're interviewing me. I'm uh, actually so much so now that these days, um, you know, I, I used to do a lot of interviews when people like you were interviewing me and I still do media. I, I show up on, on Joy Reid's show from time to time on MSNBC and all that kind of thing. But um, I'm very comfortable interviewing people. Um, I love conversations just like you do, and I probably interview one or two people, one or two authors a week on In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, and they range from everybody from former rock stars like Moby to uh, well-known authors or to just some young person who's doing something interesting um, and all, all points in between. And I guess I'll just wrap by saying that of late, by necessity and not by choice, I've spent a lot of time commenting on what's happened to the Republican Party and becoming part of the Trump cult, for which my family bears some responsibility, not for Trump, but for the direction of the party and its extremism. Um, and I guess 
besides the childcare I'm doing, the other overriding concern I have is to try to undo some of the damage my family did in making the Republican Party more of a far right radical fringe movement that finally turned into the Trump cult. Uh, and, and as I worry about the future for my family and my grandchildren, it provides a motivation to really deal with subjects that are really distasteful to me. I'd much rather just be in the kitchen cooking something with my wife or taking care of the children. At, at 71, you don't have so much to prove. And, uh, but, but we're in, we're in a fix right now. And I guess if you love anybody in this life, you, you try to protect them. And I do my best to undo some of the damage we did. I don't know if that rambling crazy intro helps you or not, but that's the best shot I can do this morning. Well, yeah, it provides, I think, a good base, a good basis for kind of a launching point for this conversation. I will tell you a little bit about myself as it relates to you and to your your father. I uh, went to a school called Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I'm trying to remember the department head's name for the humanities courses that we were all forced um, to take at ORU, but they heavily emphasized the humanities because of a specific couple that was there that headed up that program that they were huge admirers of your father mm. and they watched all of his films they were i think they were catholic probably uh which was a little bit unusual to you know to choose a, a catholic couple to head up a humanities department at an evangelical university like old roberts university in tulsa oklahoma but they were hugely influential on that program and so we watched your dad's films for four years we all had to do four years of the humanities and it was a notoriously hated program partly because of these films i hate to say uh frank because of these films of your dad's called how should we then live um and they they appealed to me on an intellectual level. I, I appreciated the intellectualism of these films, mm. uh, but they were at the point that I went to school in the 90s. They were old and they were crackly. And, you know, he, he dressed sort of funny and quirky and he spoke in very, you know, erudite language. And a lot of people just, they hated them, frankly. Um, but they were hugely influential on i think the the thought formation for a lot of people you know, like me that really did plug in and that did care um and that sought to sort of expand their knowledge and it was all presented very intellectually um for some of us who had grown up i grew up as the child of, of, of a minister music minister my father was a music minister and a preacher and he came out of the holiness pentecostal church and he ended up kind of uh, shifting to more of a word of faith charismatic uh, Pentecostal evangelical uh, kind of world. So I grew up with one foot in both of those worlds, holiness, Pentecostal, and then the evangelical movement. And so we were very much a part of, um, you know, the, the byproduct or the result of the work that both you and your father um, had done. Mm. When I was a kid in the eighties when that whole push towards um, political activism within the church was really blossoming. Reagan was in, in office and uh, we were all being encouraged. I, I remember a lot of chatter around, you know, we have to get out there and mobilize and get out of the pew and get into the voting booth. And it was just, it was becoming a whole thing in large part due to the work of your father. So I kind of want to talk first about the, uh, the, the foundational stuff. I really actually want to start our conversation with um, 
your comments on the uh, the appointing or the election of Mike Johnson mm -hmm. to the House of Representatives. And then I kind of want to backtrack and talk about uh, your history in helping to um, kind of establish this movement in the U.S. that has basically led to the point where we are now, which is yeah. the, the appointing of Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House. Can you talk to me about why uh, why we should be particularly concerned about um, his election specifically? Mm. Well, you've got a lot of stuff there. Um... And I was also, I, I also have a German degree and lived in Switzerland, by the way, which I think is, is at least partly where you grew up. Yeah, I, I did grow up to... there. Where, where were you in Switzerland? I was in Interlaken. And what were you doing there? I was trying to learn German a little bit better, not realizing that the um, the Schweizerdeutsch that they spoke in Switzerland was not, it didn't really have anything to do with high German. Um, but I, I majored in international business and German studies at Oral Roberts University. So I wanted to learn the German language better. So I, I au paired there for a year after when, I graduated. When was that, college. if you don't mind this me asking? Early, early 2000s, like 03, I think I was there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So well, let me, let me backtrack a little and I will jump into the Mike Johnson point here. If I wander, pull me back to it. <laughs> uh, my history with ORU goes back into the day when, you know, we were there speaking and I remember being on campus. I knew Richard Roberts. I knew Oral Roberts. I was there in the seventies and the eighties. They brought my dad, I think twice. Um, the Roberts family were very flaky and they've had all sorts of criminal indictments since the son and the father who died. But, you know, even back in the day, we kind of them regarded them uh, as as that. Uh, and most evangelicals did. And then then the university sort of became a little more respectable and had people teaching there who were serious about the academic pursuit. I guess by the time you got there, <clears throat> the Roberts family itself was less of a thing but back right. in the day uh, ORU is a real outlier with its prayer tower and oral or, or raising money saying that he would die three days later unless he got the money that God had shown him he needed you know there were things that um were odd okay so that's just water under the bridge but but um when it gets to to Mike Johnson um there's a connection there personally as well Unfortunately, when it comes to him, I actually know what I'm talking about, and, and I'm not BSing. Uh, I, I mean that because I know the people that formed and shaped him. I know who he follows. I know Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council and, and Ralph Reed and Franklin Graham. These are three people who discipled and mentored um, him. They, all three of them, are not very closeted pretty out in the open reconstructionist theonomous following a movement that was started by Rusev Rashtuni in the 60s and 70s who I also knew well stayed with for a week one time in California and the reconstructionists believe that the constitution of the United States was a big bad mistake they actually agree with a lot of more secular uh, commentators um, when it comes to politics, because they admit that as a document, it was not the founding of a Christian country, but rather the document owes its influence in terms of the rights of individuals, et cetera, et cetera, to the French Enlightenment and before that, the Italian Renaissance, exactly what they hate most, because that's mm -hmm. where, to use their terminology, secular humanism was born. 
So when it came to Rush Dooney, and when I tell people this, they, they, they don't believe me, but I sat with him and he told me these things personally and then wrote down 23 volumes of a huge magisterial work he did that's unreadable and goes on forever, but in which he argues for the reintroduction of the slavery, the slave trade. You heard that right. He argues for the public execution of gay people homosexuality being forbidden in the Old Testament. He regards the U.S. Constitution as a bastardized slippage away from the vision of the Bay State Colony and Winthrop and the others who knew what to do with people like the Pequot Indians when they burned them alive. And Rush Dooney's vision would be literally actually aligned with, for instance, right now, as I speak to you today, the West Bank settlers in Israel who feel they have a godly mandate to return to the Old Testament borders of Israel and prosecute uh, a land-stealing and, if necessary, genocidal war against Palestinians. I'm not talking about Gaza and the war there. I'm talking about the West Bank Orthodox Jewish settlers who 